Hey, Rockbridge, thank you so much for joining us wherever you're watching, whether physically at one of our locations or digitally and online. We are glad that you've joined with us. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team, and you are here for a, a great time, great opportunity, uh, no accidents that you're engaged with us. Uh, this weekend as we wrap up our summer sermon series that's been taking us through two chapters of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, seven letters to the church. And so this is Dear Church, Part 7, the church at Laodicea. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn them on, open them up, or you can follow along with me on the screen here in just a second. But before we get to that, we want to just remind you and re-emphasize something that we did early on in the coronavirus crisis that we're going to reinstitute starting this week, starting on Monday. And it's really that we're going to pray together. And we're going to send you a text. You just text P-R-A-Y-P-R-A-Y-24, pray 24 to 888-744-0761, and we're just going to uh, send you a text about 11 o'clock in the morning, Monday through Friday, just so you can unite with us in prayer. This is a great way to stay engaged, to stay connected, and also to contribute to the mission of God here at Rockbridge. So we just encourage you to sign up for that text. So, so listen, whether, whether you're a, a parent, uh, an athlete, or you're raising kids, or you, how you think about your own parents... All of us have probably experienced something we might now describe as tough love. Tough love, when you get it in the moment, feels not like love. It feels like they're against me. They're, they're crazy. Why are they doing this? Why is dad doing this? Why did mom do this? Why is my coach making us run five more gassers? Uh, why is the gym coach saying do three more reps? All those things, and we hate them in the moment. But in hindsight, after time and after reflection and after dividends of the tough love moment or the tough love season, we sort of look back and we're like, man, I'm glad my mom and my dad did that, taught me that, let me experience that. I'm glad that my coach put us through that. And, I'm, and, and you sort of, in, in hindsight, it just looks like, wow, that was really the most loving thing they could have done for me in the moment. But in the moment... You look at that authority figure and you're like, I don't like you. I'm not sure I want to be around you. I'm not sure I want to receive that. And that is one of the challenges that we all face in how God has to love us. Is that God's love is and must be tough love. And if we don't understand how to recognize this and also how to receive this, then we begin to cut ourselves off from God's best for us. And so we're obviously in a season as a, as a community, as a country, as Christians, where a lot of things are going on around us that are crisis-like, that are tragedies, or that where we're experiencing one degree of loss or another. And if we don't understand maybe that there is actually a gracious, loving purpose from our gracious, loving God, we might miss something in this season, in this moment. And thankfully, as we look at Dear Church Part 7, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, this church that really existed in history, Laodicea, they received God's tough love. And we're just going to sort of unpack this because what my prayer is for all of us watching, all of us attending, is that we would learn to recognize and receive the tough love of God. So let's get in the text together. We'll start reading 
here in verse 14. So here's the word of God. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, and this is like a Hebrew transliteration of what we might call, say, is true or faithful. So we're describing Jesus. So thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness that Jesus is true. He has perfect integrity. He's objective and he he speaks and he lives and he's aligned 100% with truth. And then it says that Jesus is the originator of God's creation. And this echoes a sentiment that we find in Colossians chapter 1. But everything is sourced in or begins in or originates with God in creation, or with Christ in God's creation. So, you know, when we ask the four big questions, the four big questions that every human being, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your walk of life, doesn't matter your religious beliefs, all of us are going to ask, who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? And what can be done to fix it? We're all going to bump into one of those four questions, whether when we're teenagers or at midlife crisis or in times of crisis or in times of confusion or, we're, or when we graduate college, and then we're like, what's next? We're all going to ask those questions. So, so Jesus as the originator, he contains the answer, the true objective answer, not the feel good, but the true objective answer of why we're here, what's wrong, who we are, and what God can do to bring us back to truth, to true purpose, to true identity, and to true significance. So this begins to help us because this sort of sets us up for the tough love message and the tough love that the church at Laodicea is going to receive because this tells us this, that God's tough love can be trusted and it contains truth. God's not going to lie to us. God's not going to give us something subjective and just tell us what we want to hear, which sometimes that's what we think love is. Just tell me what I want to hear, what makes me feel good in the moment. No, God's got the long view. He's got the true view, and he's got the pure view in mind when he engages us. And so his love is always going to be with truth, but it can be trusted because the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus dying in our place, right, tells us that God wants best for us, that he loves us best, and so his love to us, even when it's tough, can actually be trusted. Now, ironically, elsewhere, John, who writes Revelation in the the Gospel of John, gives a similar description of Jesus, and here's how he says it. He says, the word, which is another word for Jesus, became flesh, Jesus became a human being, and he dwelt among us, he lived among us, he walked among us. And we observed his glory. We, we saw who he was in, in reality as the amen, as the faithful and true witness. The glory as the one and only son from the father. So part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity. And he was full of grace and truth. Grace giving us not what we deserved, but truth still telling us what is reality. Still telling us who we're meant to be, and still telling us God's purpose, God's identity, and God's plan for us. Now, here's where this, here's the rub in all of this, okay? And this is where, where, where tough love begins to get rejected, not received, and not recognized. The rub in all of this is sometimes the truth, as the old adage goes, hurts, right? That, that eh, I don't like that, and I want to avoid that. That's why some of us don't go to the dentist. We just don't want to find out, right? 
And, and so in our culture and in our own beings of not wanting to deal with reality or not wanting to deal with ourselves as we really are, we sometimes do not want the truth that comes with Christ. We just want, we just want a little grace, right? And that would be loving. And so what's happened in our culture and why we kind of cut off the tough love of God, don't receive it, don't recognize it, get mad at God when it comes or start to doubt God or, or redefine God in our own image is we just want to feel good about ourselves and, and, we don't, and we're not really interested in truth. And so truth has become relativized and, it, and, and we want relative truth that makes me feel relatively good about myself. So let me ask this question. Where do we put our humility? What's happened in probably the last 50, 60, 70 years is we have taken humility, meaning we're not going to think too highly of this, and we've put it on truth when it's supposed to be on ourselves. And, and so about ourselves, we're, very, we want, we're going to be cocky and confident, and, and we want to just feel good about ourselves, not question ourselves, not doubt ourselves, share our opinions without filtering them through anything, right? How dare you question me? What's true for me may not be true for you, but I'm my own person, I'm my own God, and I'm going to go my own way. And where we're starting to get challenged with this message from Laodicea is God always intends for us to put humility on ourselves and have strong convictions about real, true, absolute, eternal truth as given to us, revealed to us in the originator of God's creation. And if we don't see this when tough love comes our way from a gracious, loving God, then we just think God is out to get me, God doesn't love me, maybe God doesn't even exist because if I were God, I would never let this happen to me. And we miss God. And, and our culture's even got like a hashtag, right? Like, well, this hashtag like love is love. Like, hey, it's just love, right? And that's all we're about, and that's all we're focused on. And when you, when you adopt this kind of description of love, inadvertently, you're saying, hey, it, it, the truth can't hurt. Love can't hurt. Love's got to be okay. And, and so as we move forward in this, in this conversation about this church in Laodicea, we have to understand where we put our humility so we can receive and recognize the tough, amazing love of God. So here goes Jesus now going to kind of diagnose and describe the issues going on. Here's what he says. He says, I know your works, like he said to multiple churches, if you've been tracking with us in this series, that you are neither hot nor cold. And he says, I wish that you were cold or hot, just be one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. And that's the son of God saying that. It's kind of revolting. It's very graphic. It's very descriptive. It's very clear what he means. Now let me help, let's help ourselves with the context that's going on in, in Laodicea. Laodicea actually did not have a fresh water supply. So they had Roman aqueducts that came into the city. And there were two sources of water. One was actually a hot spring. 
And a hot spring can be useful for therapeutic purposes, uh, for medicinal purposes, etc. But as it came through the aqueduct system, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was tepid or lukewarm. And so the water quality in Laodicea was kind of, yeah, right? You didn't really like to drink it, but you sort of had to. They also had a, a water source that came from a very cold spring that was refreshing. And it was, you know, known as some of the best water in this region. But by the time it went through the aqueduct system and got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So Jesus isn't saying be hot for him or cold for him. He's just saying, you're useless, He's just saying, just like the water, I mean, just be one or the other. You can, you can be hot water and be useful, like hot coffee is good. You can be cold and useful, like cold iced tea or a cold iced Coke is good. But you're neither one of those things. And so I just want to spit you out of my mouth. And, and that's the intention of it. Now, he doesn't really define what being lukewarm is. He doesn't really define that yet. We're going to get that in, in, the next, in the next verse, in the next context. And so it's helpful to understand this about Laodicea as we move into verse 17. In about AD 60, an earthquake devastated, destroyed the region, and most of the urban center of Laodicea was destroyed. Now, here's the a crazy thing that happened. The Laodiceans rebuilt their city without Roman help. Without the help of the Roman government. That, you know, like we have FEMA and, and a governor declares a disaster area and the federal government comes in and helps with rebuilding efforts after hurricanes or tornadoes, etc. So Laodicea said, no, we're not going to take that and we're just going to be, rebuild ourselves. So Laodicea had a sense of self-sufficiency. Understanding that is very key to understanding lukewarmness and what Jesus says next. He says, for you say, I'm rich I have become wealthy, and here's the key phrase, and I need nothing. I don't need any help. I'm good. I'm satisfied. Everything's great. And then Jesus says to them, you don't realize, you're blind, you lack awareness that you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. You don't recognize your reality. You are deceived into thinking because you're rich, because you rebuilt your city, that, and, and that you don't need God, that spiritually you're okay, that everything is good. I'm good, life's good, bank account's good, so me and God must be good. All of that stuff that we've all kind of been tempted to feel or we've been tempted to believe. And so this is when we understand that lukewarm Warmness is when we get in that place spiritually where we really don't think we need God. And so God's tough love has a target on our self-sufficiency and our pride. And, and, and this is what makes it challenging, right? Most of us want to feel self-sufficient. And all of us deal with pride. And God's tough love is not going to let us live like that. He loves us too much. But Matt, it doesn't feel like love in the moment. Exactly. Neither did when your coach made you run the extra wind sprint, when your parents grounded you or took something from you that you hated them for in the moment, but you look back on it and like, man, I'm, I'm thankful that I got that lesson. Now, here's the challenge, right? The challenge is this. Our nature wants to be self-sufficient. 
and our nature also, we have blind spots where we can't see everything about ourselves. Oftentimes our closest relatives and friends can, but we can't. So we might never describe ourselves as prideful, but the three people we work with would say, you got a pride problem. We would never describe ourselves as, as, worry, as worryful or anxious, overly anxious. That's just how we are and we have a right to be, but people around us would be like, you're taking that a little bit far. We would never describe ourselves as greedy. We would say, no, no, I'm just being cautious, wise, and careful. But if you look at kind of how we spend our money or how generous we are or how generous we're not, you know, other people might say, "Eh, you might be a little greedy. So we have these blind spots, plus our nature wants to be self-sufficient. Now, and this makes it so challenging because most of us are not going to say, hey, I don't need God. Nobody's going to really say that, especially in the Bible Belt, especially if you're like watching a church service. But I don't really need God. But what we'll end up doing is we'll say, God, would you bless our forms of self-sufficiency? And would you bless the ambitions of our pride? And then when God withholds or doesn't do that, it's God's problem. It's God's fault. And we've got an issue with God. But here's the reality that we have to see that we cannot miss This is truth. Without God's tough love, no one would be saved and heaven would be empty. Because you and I do not get saved by being self-sufficient. We're not going to go to heaven and God's going to say, okay, tell me all the good things you did. Let me weigh that against the bad things you did. That's not going to happen. We are wretched, pitiful, naked, poor And we need the righteousness and the riches of someone else to be credited to us. And that's what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Ephesians 2.8 says it this way. God saved you by his grace, undeserved, when you believed. All you did was trust. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. None of us can take credit for it. None of us can say, hey, I rebuilt my life. I was a good person. God, let me into your heaven. It won't happen. And so God knows that if we live in a relationship with him and ourselves and each other people that's built on self-sufficiency and pride, we can't receive the greatest thing in the world, which is the gift of God, salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way, the very thing you and I need most, right, salvation, well, the very thing we want most, self-sufficiency, keeps us from the love that we need the most, keeps us from the love we need the most. And so here's the tension. You see the tension in the statement, right? What we want the most, God's committed not to giving it to you. He's committed not to giving to you. The whole system of salvation has design, is designed so our pride and self-sufficiency crumbles. That's why many people have to be fully broken before they can be fully saved and fully recognize the love, the grace, the truth, the sovereignty, the power, the mercy, and the majesty of God. But the very thing we want the most is self-sufficiency. So when God orchestrates, allows things into your life, into your world that attack your self-sufficiency. God is actually loving you, but you think God's hating on you or you're tempted to become a practical, functional atheist and just say, God, you've let me down. I'll just figure it out on my own. And God's like, well, that's what you've been trying to do anyway. I'm trying to wake you up 
to love you into my family and my kingdom. This is the attitude that we see emerge after Paul is saved. And Paul says this remarkable statement. He goes, look, as for me, I'm never going to boast. I'm never going to brag about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, I die, my pride dies, my self-sufficiency dies, because my sin, my nature put Jesus there. But at the cross, I see how much he loves me and how much he's willing to die in my place and put his righteousness and his goodness into my account so I can receive adoption and redemption and forgiveness and eternal life with him. Now, this is challenging. We've been talking about this theologically, but let's talk about it practically. How, how do you recognize when you're being self-sufficient? I mean, it's just sort of natural to be that way, especially kind of once you get you know, out of the terrible twos and into the teenage years, then you graduate from high school or college, you get your job and your car and your house and your family and your bank account. I mean, how do you recognize self-sufficiency when it's so natural, second nature to, to be that way and when we have blind spots that prevent us from even seeing it? Well, let me give you some symptoms. We're lukewarm about God. It's hard to be passionate about something you don't really think you need or you don't really want. And if you don't really think you need God or the only time you're going to need God is right before the, you know, the funeral director comes to pick up your body, if that's the only time you think you're going to need God, then in your roaring 20s and in your midlife and your 30s, your teenage years on the football field, in the classroom, making money, all that kind of, you don't really need God. So, so you're meh, God's, you're just lukewarm. Jesus is like, I want to throw you up. But if you know you need God and you know he died to give himself to you, it's hard not to be pretty fired up about Jesus. Defensive and easily offended. When we're defensive about ourselves, it means we've probably not really been broken or humbled. And we're, we're guarded about ourselves. And how dare you say that about me? How dare you challenge my opinions? How dare you challenge my beliefs? Because we want to relativize the truth to make ourselves feel okay. And when someone gives us objective truth, we're defended, we're defensive. Relational strife, because it's so hard, you know what? It's so hard to say I'm sorry. It's so, so hard to forgive other people if you're all about yourself or you're, or you're dealing with this self-sufficiency. We tend toward independence. Sometimes humor and sarcasm is used like camouflage. Because a lot of times people will default to humor and sarcasm when things get serious or when they're having to face a tough truth. And to push that truth away, people just make a joke. People just get sarcastic. Right? Busyness. Some people are busy just so they don't have to face the truth about themselves or their situation or their lives. And God wants to address all this. Now let's, let's look at the other side. What are some signs of dependence? Deep gratitude and contentment. Because I realize in Jesus Christ, I am never getting what I deserve. In Christ, I'm never getting what I deserve. I'm getting grace. We're very humble about ourselves. And we have strong convictions about eternal truths and objective truths as revealed in Christ and as revealed in his word. I think this, I think when we're dependent, we have a vibrant prayer life. A lot of times we think prayer is some formula, some technique that we have to master. You know what makes people good at prayer? Desperation and dependence. If you're desperate and dependent, you have a great prayer life. I promise you, you do. 
So a lot of times we look at prayer as a religious thing, like, well, I've got to do this and this, and I've got to, well, how do I do? What's the combination code to be a good prayer person? Oh, I heard that person pray at church. Man, they're so much better than me. That's your pride talking. Because prayer is not a performance. Prayer is a voice and a cry of desperation to a God who is more than gracious and more than willing to hear us. We're open-handed with money and possessions because they don't define us. Hey, it's nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with having possessions, but we're very open-handed and gracious and generous. And then we have this pervading peace because we're not always looking at ourselves and wondering, am I going to get what I want? What do those people think about me? How's this thing going to affect me and my deal? We're locked onto Christ, the amen, the faithful, the true one, right? The beginning, the originator of creation, the one who died in our place and gave us better than we deserve. And that makes us have some peace even in a chaotic world in which we live. So the church is lukewarm. Jesus never leaves us as we are. He always wants to help us move to where he wants us to be in order for us to receive his best. So he comes now in verse 18 and he gives them some direction. The only time in these two chapters where Jesus says this phrase, I advise you, let me help you out. Let me coach you. Let me instruct you. Let me give you some counsel. Buy from me, and he uses an analogy of buying gold. He says, buy from me gold, and here's the key word, refined in the fire with the impurities removed. Most of us don't go, go buy just a piece of gold that was pulled out of the mine. We buy a piece of gold that's been refined and formed into a ring or an earring or a necklace or a pendant or a bracelet, right? So he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. You think you're rich, you're not. What I give you makes you rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed, that would be righteous and pure, and your shameful nakedness not exposed, you've been covered, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus wants them to see reality, see truth, and receive truth, recognize God, even when his love is tough, right? And then here's the phrase that, we, that I'm getting tough love from, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So you are a lukewarm, I want to puke you out of my mouth, but I'm doing it because I love you. That sounds kind of like a contradiction, right? I want to throw you up, but I love you. So I'm rebuking discipline. So you be zealous. You get committed again and repent and come back into this right relationship with me. That's so beautiful, right? I mean, in the text, we have this graphic description of God Almighty wanting to throw up the lukewarm Laodiceans. And we read that and we're to God, I don't want to ever be that way. But when God says that, that's like a, a wake up because he's saying, I'm saying that because I love you. I rebuke you and discipline you. I'm just trying to wean you from your self-sufficiency so you can have my fullness, my riches, and my life. So the key analogy that we need to embrace is God's tough love is offered as refining. Elsewhere, even in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, God is called a refiner's fire, that he's always refining us and shaping us and taking away those pieces of pride and self-sufficiency that make us inward-focused, self-exalting or self-focused instead of God-focused and God-exalting. And that refining is sometimes hard to receive. And so here's the thing that we need to begin to recognize and have eyes to see is the very thing we often use as evidence against God and his love is often one of the deepest expressions of his love. It's often one of the deepest expressions 
of his love. And the beautiful thing about the analogy of the refiner's fire is this. God's love is not a forest fire that just burns us up indiscriminately. It's intentional. It's an intentional work of God. It's the surgeon with a scalpel, not just an axe. It's precise. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's not blazing out of control. It's a refining fire to make this gold more pure, purer, to make us more like Christ, more in love with Christ, more dependent upon Christ. Now, here's the question for us. This is one I've been wrestling with. How do we recognize the tough love of God? We've sort of talked about purpose and why God does it this way and the reality of it, but but the truth is this. If God brings, allows, causes adversity, trials, suffering to come into your life, if God disrupts your life, and all of our lives have been disrupted, so, so all of us maybe are looking maybe now at this season we're in and as, a, as communities in a country, maybe we're looking at it through a different lens because of what we've been talking about. But how do we recognize it? Because some people go through trials and suffering and they get mad and leave God. They get bitter about life. They become the victim and everything's a victim. And they, they just carry scars around, splinters in their hands, and they're wounded for the rest of their lives. Because maybe, what, what do we do to recognize? How do we recognize that this is tough love, that this is the refiner's fire, that this is God speaking, and I need to cooperate with what he's doing? How do we recognize that? And as I look through you know, this book that we've been reading, Revelation, and this, this whole incredible thing called the Bible, I think God's tough love is recognized through the Word of God and the people of God. And it is the Word of God that gives us perspective, that we can, how we can look at our lives, our situations, in order to see how God is shaping us, challenging us, changing us. Or as Jesus said, we just read a couple of verses ago, I advise you. And and he coaches them and pushes them in love. He rebukes them so they can can, uh, repent and receive what he's doing. And it's the people of God also that speak into our lives, that share with us, that pray for us, that help us see that, hey, God, maybe he took this away, but it was so we would depend less on what he took away and more on him. Maybe God wants to do something new and and he had to allow that happen because you never would have let that go. And it's God's word that helps us with that. Look at what Timothy or Paul says to Timothy. And and Timothy's a preacher. So he's speaking to a pastor about how he leads his people. He says this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, there's going to be topics and there's going to be times where what you have to say, people don't want to hear. Sounds a lot like tough love, doesn't it? Correct, rebuke, and encourage, but do so with great patience and teaching. And so one of the functions of the church is to have environments where the word of God can flourish and be spoken to and from one another whether it's through pastors and preachers or small group leaders or just a group of friends practicing biblical accountability and encouragement over coffee, over lunch, over a Zoom. That's the importance of the Word of God in our lives. And and that's why we want to even help you with that. Another thing you can text is TWG. There's our number, 888-744-0761. And and five, six days a week, we'll send you a way to spend time with God. 
We'll just send that to you to help you and to encourage you, and you can spend time with God. Now, I'll share this in my life. So I was recently going through the book of Jeremiah. And this, I, this is going to expose some blind spots, but it exposes also how God disciplines us and refines us. So the book of Jeremiah is written by a preacher, a prophet. So me being a preacher, I'm sort of reading the book of Jeremiah, and I'm like, well, this is kind of for a guy like me, God, because I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, and, and I'm all reading this whole thing, looking at Jeremiah, looking at Jeremiah, looking at Jeremiah. And I came to chapter 38, and there's a king that Jeremiah is dealing with named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is just defying God and not listening to the word of God. And so I'm reading this thing, Jeremiah, Zedekiah, Jeremiah, Zedekiah, and I'm writing stuff, praying stuff about Jeremiah and as it impacts my life. And, and, and I just kind of stopped listening to myself for a moment. I was just having this kind of quiet time reflecting. And this thought, I believe it was from God, came into my mind. It's like, okay, Matt, you've been looking at Jeremiah. I want you to look at how you might be like Zedekiah. I'm like, God, Zedekiah is not the preacher. He's the defiant one who's being preached against. Now, in pride, I don't want to hear that. In my flesh, and I don't want God to, like, God, I'd rather you talk to me like, you're, like about Jeremiah stuff. Well, I need to talk to you about some Zedekiah stuff. That's tough love through the Word of God. So as you're in the Word of God, let me just give you a little acronym of how you might hear from God. Because let's, I want to be honest, when you open the Word of God, God's going to say probably uh, something in one of four categories to you. He's going to say something about himself, an attribute, something about his character. He's going to tell you uh, something he's accomplished and or promises to you because of that accomplishment. He's going to give you an expectation, a command, or he's going to tell you about a sin in your life or something that you need to be warned to, to not go down that path. And so I, I just sort of came up with this acronym. It's called HEAR. So anytime I open the Word of God, I'm going to hear God speak to me, and it's going to fall in generally one of these four categories, an area where I need God to help me. God, I am not doing that. I need your spirit. I need your grace. I need another believer to come and help me. I need help. Uh, express faith and gratitude. God, I'm going to believe this promise. God, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful that you do this, that you are this. Uh, God, help me to believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Bible is just loaded with those. Adoration. God, I'm not going to ask you for anything. I'm just going to praise you because of your grace, because of your majesty, because of your mercy. And then the last one is repent or a warning not to go down a path so that you have to repent. So I'm reading this, Jeremiah, Zedekiah, Jeremiah, Zedekiah. And when, when God's spirit spoke to my mind and I, and I processed that, then I immediately have to go to, okay, God, how do I need to repent? How am I being more like Zedekiah? And as that came clear, then I come up, okay, God, I need your help. And so people say, hey, Matt, have you ever heard from God? I'm like, yeah. All the time, if I'm listening, when I open the, the word of God, that's how I receive his love. And sometimes it's tough, but it's always good. And there's nothing like being loved by God. We end with always with promises. Now listen to this. This is so powerful. So God, Jesus, I want to throw you up. But I love you, 
And look where he's trying to get this church. Look where, and, it's, and it's the same place he's trying to get everybody listening. See, I want you to see, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in. But, but you control whether this door gets open or not. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And this, in, in the first century, eating with someone in their house was one of the great signs of friendship and intimacy that, that there was in the culture. I want to eat with him and he with me. Note, I want you to count the number of times we're going to see this word with. And he's, he continues and he says, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on as his throne. So the intimacy the son enjoys with the father is the same type of intimacy the son wants to enjoy with the church at Laodicea and with every person listening to my voice right now. So let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And this all sounds very similar to one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 1611. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. The joy of living with you forever. So a holy, true, pure, almighty God wants to have fellowship, intimacy, communion, relationship with people like you and me. And to get us to the fullness of that relationship, he has to take us through refinement, through the refiner's fire, which means he has to love us in ways that sometimes are tough with the promise, though, that God's tough love brings the best. What's the best? Being with him. Being with him forever. I hope and pray you're on that path. And so I just want to give us all a question for our time. Most of us have said or made a statement similar to this. We've said, man, if God really loved me, he would. If God were really a God of love, he would not. But maybe the question we need to be asking is this. How? is God loving me? How is God loving us right now at this moment? And maybe now through the Holy Spirit, we all have a different filter through which to perceive God in this season as his love is best and brings the best, but it's often tough. And may you have eyes to see and recognize and receive the tough love of God so that you can enjoy greater intimacy with him and ultimately with him forever. Wherever you're listening, wherever you're watching, let's pray together. God, first, I just want to thank you. Maybe you've uh, expanded our perceptions today. Maybe you've enlarged our, our faith today and given us eyes to look at a situation, an adversity, an affliction with a different perspective than when we walked in and when we started listening. And maybe, God, we're seeing how loving you are and how gracious you are so that we might receive that, cooperate with that, and just say right now in our hearts, God, the greatest thing I want is to be with you forever. And if you're not on that path, I pray by the Spirit's presence that you might surrender your life, give Jesus a steering wheel of your life, receive his death as your death, his life as your life, and enjoy fellowship and communion with him. God, thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you that you don't leave us as we are but that you want to refine us so that we can enjoy your presence 
forever. God, do your will in all of us. May we have ears to hear today. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.